This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. In a recent paper called On Confetti Regulation, The Wrong Way to Regulate Gamified Investing, Professors Kyle Langvart and James Fallows Tierney write, Zero commission investing apps like Robinhood have a business model that requires clients to trade as much as possible. To that end, these apps incorporate design features sometimes called gamification, behavioral prompts, and flashy casino-like design elements that encourage trading. Securities regulators have focused on elements that encourage repeat engagement and trading. According to the professors, there are many ways both to define the problem and to address it through policy. We're fortunate to have Professor Tierney on the show to talk about gamification and possible policy solutions today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. Uh, Another good episode today. We are staying in some of the very popular securities regulation topics that that we're reading about today in the paper. And, you know, after years, Chris, we're finally at a place where there are securities regulation topics in popular media. <laughs> That's right. It's exciting, man. You know, last week we talked with uh, Ty Galosh a little bit about some market plumbing issues that folks have been focusing on since at least meme stock mania earlier this year. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about gamification or, you know, nudges that perhaps encourage people to trade uh, with greater frequency or in different products than they might otherwise trade. So it's going to be a good one. We have got a great guest lined up. As you mentioned, Professor James Tierney visiting with us from Nebraska. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest? Professor James Fallows Tierney is an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska College of Law, where he teaches and researches on securities and capital markets regulation. Before joining the faculty, he practiced at the SEC's Office of the General Counsel as senior counsel in the adjudication staff. Before joining the staff in 2015, he practiced regulatory policy and appellate litigation at Mayor Brown and clerked for Judge Mary Schroeder of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. James' recent work on gamification includes Gamification and Securities Regulation, came out September of this year, and a forthcoming work with his UNL colleague Kyle Langbart in the Yale Law Journal Forum titled On Confetti Regulation, The Wrong Way to Regulate Gamified Investing. We're excited to get into the confetti and into the trenches with James today on Insecurities. James, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, so I'm Excellent. really happy to be here. <laughs> we heard there were people like that out there. This is the first time we've confirmed it, though, Kurt. Uh, yeah, well, sometimes we just have only time callers. So I hope you come back, <laughs> James. <laughs> Happy uh, to do so. As we mentioned, we want to talk a little bit today about uh, gamification. When we were chatting about this in the prep, we were calling this a little bit more confetti and a little bit less PFOF. But you know, I think you could listen to the last couple of our episodes together to get a pretty good sense of what's going on in the market. 
Uh, before we jump into it, uh, I want to just level set a little bit here. So the focus of today's episode is digital engagement practices or DEPs, which uh, I think is probably an acronym that Chair Gensler coined um, earlier this year and has been talking about an awful lot in recent weeks and months. Um, but that includes behavioral prompts or nudges, application design and user experience elements. Sometimes those things all get lumped together under the moniker gamification. The reason we want to talk about gamification is because people in the markets, behavioral psychologists, and certainly people at the SEC and some other agencies think the gamification of investment applications or platforms may be having unintended consequences on the markets, on individual retail investors, and sometimes even on large institutional players. But before we get into that, let's take a step back and do a refresher on some of the prevailing market factors that have given rise to or encouraged gamification in the markets. And of course, as, as I've suggested, a lot of that has to do with payment for order flow or some related market plumbing issues. On our last episode, episode 50, we talked with Ty Galosh, the executive director of Healthy Markets, about the SEC's GameStop report. And we're just going to give you a really quick download on some of those market plumbing issues and payment for order flow. So as a reminder, at the most basic level, payment for order flow refers to a system or arrangements through which retail brokers like Fidelity or TD Ameritrade, Interactive Brokers, Charles Schwab, Robinhood certainly, receive a small payment, usually fractions of a penny per share, as compensation for directing investors buy or sell orders to a particular market maker, large brokerage house, a dark pool, or an individual who acts as a market maker on a lit exchange. Essentially, in a payment for order flow system, the retail broker sells investors' orders to a third party who will execute that order. That's payment for order flow. And to be fair, that is really general uh, and, and focused primarily on equities trading. It, it may not necessarily be applicable to all categories of investment vehicles or market makers. But it's important to remember that this is pretty embedded in our capital markets. In fact, PFOF has been around for, for decades, and it's become even more widely adopted in recent years. It's contributed to some pretty, pretty dramatic changes in our capital markets. For example, commission-free trading is now the norm. There's been an increase in retail investor participation in the markets. Um, you know, simply Main Street investors are buying more shares in individual companies instead of, or, or maybe in addition to, lumping their investing capital into mutual funds or ETFs that track wide market segments. For this system to work, though, that is for, for it to be profitable for retail brokers, there needs to be a sufficiently high volume of stock trading. Simply because retail brokers are selling investors' order flow to market makers, retail investors need to place enough buy and sell orders for those payment for order flow arrangements to be profitable. Enter user experience, app design, nudges, gamification. So for a couple of years, we've been experiencing an unprecedented retail trading boom. And in August, The Economist summed it up as follows. A mass of active retail traders have been romping around the American stock market for more than a year. They piled into short-dated derivative bets on Tesla, an electric vehicle maker, and bid up shares in Hertz, a car rental firm, after it went bankrupt. Earlier this year came their piece de resistance, a frantic rally in the shares of GameStop, a video game retailer, which rose by 2,000% in a little over two weeks. So volatile was the share price and so large the flows that the stock settlement system nearly broke. 
Between October 2019 and February 2020, trading volumes at retail brokers almost doubled from a low level before doubling again once lockdowns began. In 2019, around 59 million Americans had accounts with one of seven of the largest brokers. This number has surged since to 95 million, as 17 million new accounts were opened in 2020, and 20 million were set up this year in 2021. That article warns that the proximate causes for the retail renaissance are hard to disentangle, but some of the causes are certainly knowable and provide helpful context for today's conversation. So we need to unpack that a little bit. And James, it's time to pull you in here. So tell us a little bit, in your estimation, what are some of the factors that are driving this retail trading boom? Yeah. So as you point out, a, a big trend in stock markets over the last 18 to 24 months has been the rise or the reemergence of retail investors. This is you know, seen most obviously in the interest in meme stocks like GameStop and AMC and the like. But ultimately, it's a function of the fact that it's easier than ever before to trade in stocks and options and the emerging retail market of crypto. So that's a big change from um, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago when brokers charged high commissions and people tended to invest in pooled investment funds, ETFs, mutual funds, not single name equities or options. Um, and you know, in fact, this trend has uh, really shifted from uh, the 1950s when most corporate equities were held by individuals to about 10, 15 years ago when folks in uh, you know, our field were thinking deretailization of securities markets because stock ownership had largely moved from you know a, a household portfolio to an institutional model but as you say that has shifted and retail is making up you know a greater share of trading and options volume uh, the proportion of stock on on household balance sheets no longer reflects some of those historical trends you know there there are a couple of uh, things that are at play here the biggest change is the shift to zero commission trading um, between that and technological innovation, you've put the tools for low cost, free to play, kind of like you know a game like Candy Crush, right? Free to play, but you have uh, microtransactions that you pay for over time. That kind of free to play day trading is now in the average investor's pocket. Plus, over the last year and a half or so, there have been uh, not as many opportunities for people to be entertained, um, to have kind of risk consumption. Uh, if they like to gamble, you know, people are less willing to go out and uh, you know do sports gambling or casino gambling. And with entertainment budgets down over the pandemic, you know, Bloomberg columnist Matt Levine has called this the boredom markets hypothesis. That with folks sitting around, maybe a little bit of cash left over from stimulus checks, things like that. Uh, you know, it, it creates kind of a perfect storm for increased retail participation in speculative asset markets. And that's especially true when you, uh, you know, account for some of the lower costs of, of sharing information and coordinating plans about your trading on social media like Twitter, Reddit's Wall Street Bets, and, you know, and, and other platforms like that. So given all of this, we, we really shouldn't be surprised to see a retail trading boom or a retail brokerage business model that is designed to cater to it. James, thank you for name dropping uh, Matt Levine. We hope that he is also a longtime listener and soon to be a one-time caller. 
onto the podcast. We we love his <laughs> his analysis of the markets. And I think, you know, you've kind of given us the landscape of all of the different elements that are leading to this retail uh, rise of retail trading, you know, from the psychological to the pandemic to the change in the way the markets are acting on their own. But that extra element that makes this kind of candy crush uh, focused is that technology. Um, there's a bunch of new apps out there whose developers focus on application design and user experience, right? Maybe beyond what any broker or any uh, stock trade might have been before. And that, I think, is where we're talking about that phrase gamification. So can you talk to us a little bit more about the definition of gamification and then how that fits into these retail trading apps? Yeah, for sure. So I think in talking about gamification and then more broadly, the category of regulatory interest, uh, digital engagement practices, you know, it's really important to define our terms and, and figure out that everyone is kind of talking on the same page, both about what's happening in the real world, as well as what the evidence shows and how it may bear on what we're concerned about. So when I think of gamification, you know, the, the game studies literature talks about the use of game design features in non-game contexts. And maybe that helps to think broadly about importing user experience and user interface, but it doesn't give us a whole lot of traction on, on what this actually means. So I think of it in terms of superficial rewards or other kinds of design features that drive engagement and motivation. And the thought behind this generally, and not just in you know, the brokerage context, is that rewards can activate uh, you know, uh, dopamine pathways in our, in our brains that encourage uh, you know, motivation and encourage repeat interaction, that can plausibly have good purposes, like if it's used to encourage engagement with some otherwise dull task, but plausibly it can also be used to drive a business model by encouraging people to do things that they um, wouldn't otherwise do. So what does it actually look like? Uh, for Robinhood, probably the, the biggest player in this space and the one that has had the largest spotlight shown on it, confetti is the obvious one. For a while, Robinhood would uh, splash some confetti across the screen when you executed a trade successfully um, or did other things uh, like introduce new users to the platform. But gamification also includes some other uh, you know, design features, including leaderboards, badges, rewards, other superficial aesthetic, you know, dopamine hits that are meant to engage you and keep your brain focused, your attention focused on this app. And, you know, you, you could think of your average HR compliance training webinar. Um, we see these sorts of superficial rewards all the time, badges, rewards, points, things like that. And the more superficial it is, the less likely it is to have a, a meaningful uh, change in behavior. More broadly, with respect to retail trading apps, you could think of gamification as a somewhat more all-encompassing term that people try to fit uh, stuff that they consider problematic that might run the range from aesthetic to things that are much more serious and that it might deceive us or lead us to make choices that we wouldn't otherwise make. Yeah, I think it's a, a good point about how maybe people are trying to squeeze an awful lot into gamification. And, you know, like you said earlier, it's always a good idea to define terms and make sure we understand concepts before, you know, we sort of press forward to talk about what may be 
um, you know, some of the the things that regulators could be looking at or thinking about regulating in some way. So I want to talk for a second about digital engagement practices or DEPs. And I mentioned earlier that this is something we've heard a lot about from Gary Gensler. I think that is actually different, perhaps broader um, than, than gamification. I know Chair Gensler has said it includes predictive data analytics and differential marketing. It also includes behavioral prompts, but it, it seems to be more than uh, more than just gamification. Can you help us sort of define gamification uh, and DEPs and, and you know where they might intersect or not? Yeah, for sure. And I, I agree that the concept of DEPs is by design much broader than gamification. And in you know in the popular and even specialty press, uh, you know gamification seems to be a stand-in term for DEPs. But from the you know inklings I get from the SEC. The staff and Chair Gensler uh, certainly are thinking of this under a much broader framework. And so you could probably think of gamification as a subset of, of DEPs. Recent signals from the agency, primarily the request for information that they released uh, you know, in, at the end of August, suggest that the agency is thinking about gamification as a broader front in a war of rethinking how securities law engages with new technology. And that includes things mm-hmm. like new technologies for offering financial services and advice, like robo-advising, as well as some of the hidden or back-end stuff that might increase regulatory concerns about the use of these technologies. If it turns out, for instance, that a broker learns what sorts of behavioral prompts are more likely to get me to trade, only for the purpose of encouraging me to trade to develop more order flow, even if that's not in my best interest, that might be a a particular concern. But it's not necessarily gamified app design itself. You could even think that digital engagement practices extend more broadly to other advisory or kind of market-adjacent practices like social media touts, um, I, I've spoken with a lot of audiences recently, and uh, a persistent theme that comes up is the concern that folks on social media, on Twitter, on you know uh, forums, are recommending securities without being fully disclosing of the conflicts that they may have. And you know there are obviously existing laws that deal with uh, you know these sorts of conflicts and, and uh, lacks of di- lack of disclosures in connection with the the sale of securities. But the agency's focus on this reflects a multi-pronged approach that isn't just limited to app design. So that means that you know digital engagement practices of the sort that concern regulators are those that probably induce trading in securities that are most likely to be at the front and most salient in the attention of traders, right? So this could be leaderboards or push notifications, pre-populated lists, or things that otherwise change our behavior by giving us more information tailored to our circumstances. Yeah, that makes sense. I I agree with all of that. And I think we may have things happening in parallel at the agencies, both in terms of how they're looking at these sort of nudges and leaderboards, those kind of features, versus how they're thinking about things like in this new digital age of investment platforms and investment advice, like what is a recommendation now? Where, where does that happen? When does that happen? 
as a I wouldn't say reformed gamer, but as a gamer, right, a guy who grew <laughs> up with a with an NES, a Nintendo Entertainment System, in the late '80s and early '90s. Uh, I love the fact that there are these little games. You know, I think about when I go to the pet store to get dog food for my dog, there's a little slider bar that rolls up to, if you spend $100, you get $5 off your next purchase. There's gamification in a lot of what we do uh, across our, our regular lives, as well as now it seems to be that trading and that digital marketplace. So uh, you talked a bit about some of the ways that we got to this uh, trading mentality, this nudge-focused uh, digital engagement practice platform. But you know, the question that I've, I've kicked around with Kurt and others prior is, you know, who cares, right? If if someone is accessible enough to be swayed by one of these electronic nudges, you know, isn't that more of a caveat emptor uh, type idea than than putting this on some mastermind behind a curtain, creating these dopamine exchanges? Or you know, we go to the casino all the time. The the regulation on the casino and Kurt and I spoke at length with Tigalash last week about uh, his nephew that could put down $20 at the blackjack table or put $20 into to trading on his phone. So we talk about regulating here, but should we really be concerned with these trends to consider you know, this overhaul of regulation or do we let the market sort this out? Yeah, so I, I gotta just start by saying I was a I was a Sega guy, not a Nintendo. Ooh, but okay. I, <laughs> Had I known that, we might not have been able to fit you in the schedule here. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, me, me, mea culpa. So you know, I, I hear what you're saying, and, and and I think it reflects maybe the optimistic view of gamification. It can encourage engagement and motivation, and you know, uh, make it easier for people to learn and potentially have responsible financial behavior engaging with capital markets. You know, there's there's also just the uh, the straightforward aesthetic view that the user experience of most discount brokerage apps until fairly recently was in the words of one observer dull as dishwater. And so you could think that all of these things both the possibility that gamification and increased you know digital mediation of how we interact with securities markets as well as you know a more attractive user experience is going to be beneficial and by the same token zero commission investing plausibly broadens opportunities for growing wealth to the masses that's been one of Robinhood's uh, central themes throughout uh, you know all of its marketing uh, in the run-up to its IPO that they are democratizing investment and it is plausibly true that if uh, you know the the main way that you grow wealth in in the economy is or in, in you know our, our capitalist economy is to invest in corporate equities and other pooled investment vehicles then you know, encouraging folks to do that responsibly is kind of um, uh, something that you know a, a social choice that we should encourage. There, there's a there's a more pessimistic view um, that you know if we if we take seriously this idea of a of, of a conflict of interest and you know uh, Kurt, I think you mentioned the the possibility of the of the casino, right? You know, there the casino has a conflict of interest where they want you to gamble more because they get to keep more of the. I'm not really a gambler, but what is it, the vig, right? So they get to keep their share, yeah. and they're going to encourage us to do more gambling. That's why they give you the you know the free drinks late at night at the poker table. And by the same token, you know, there is a fundal, fundamental uh, conflict of interest in brokerage, which is to earn transaction-based con- compensation and to therefore increase the volume of transaction flow 
increasing the remuneration to the broker, even when it's not in the best interest of the customer. And so if that's a real concern to us, and if we think that, in fact, brokers in the real world are using design practices um, or other kind of more hidden, less visible engagement practices to learn what will make us individually trade more and then encourage us individually to do so. It seems like the casino is learning specifically what is going to make you or me specifically uh, more likely to pull that lever on the slot machine one more time. And so the concern I think with DEPs from this more pessimistic view is that how we engage with brokerage apps and vice versa might affect the choices we make. And so, you know, brokerage and financial advisory apps, and you know, I, I include both because you could think of this not only being a, a problem for broker dealers, but also for robo-advisors. Robo so these yeah. apps can do so by presenting us with information or appealing to predictable cognitive or behavioral regularities that get us to make choices that we otherwise wouldn't make. And one predictable regularity, and probably the one that I think has the, the most empirical uh, basis for it with respect to these trading apps, is salience bias. The idea that we give greater weight to aspects of a decision that are at the front of our attention. And so the real concern with DEPs is that when securities become more salient in retail traders' attention, that can induce demand for the newly salient thing that they're you know, starting to consider. So you know, there's, there have been um, a number of studies of Robinhood investors uh, you know, trying to figure out why exactly people are, are trading so much. And I should just take a step back and say, you know, decades of research into retail investor behavior reflects that, you know, the more you trade, the worse you're likely to perform. And there are simple explanations, rational reasons why people might do that. People actively trade for the same reason that they like gambling, they go to the casino. They like to take risk. They like to feel the wind in their hair. And maybe most important for younger users of these apps, they might have a particular preference for high volatility, get rich quick type um, plays on speculative assets if they have an aspiration for um, for riches. And you know the the evidence suggests that that doesn't fully cover the motivations for trader behavior. And research suggests that you know. Uh, Robinhood users tend to react to the presentation of information that is given to them. There have been a bunch of studies that have looked at different metrics of, of market performance or you know, uh, the trades that Robinhood users are making on days when Robinhood service was out to see how the presence of those users shapes the market. And these studies have, I think for the most part, found that um, app design features like leaderboards of stocks that are held most by Robinhood users can encourage uh, piling on or herding trades and induce trading in these securities that become more, more salient. Um, that is potentially going to increase the compensation to market makers uh, and thus you know, the related payment for order flow issues. Yeah, so I think there are, you know, potential pros and cons here when we think about what what's going on in the market. I mean, to to be fair, there have been day traders or, you know, people that have traded um in individual names in higher volume than the average American for for a long time, you know, ever since it was possible to trade stock on on the internet. Um 
but it has really come to a head you know, over the last year or 18 months. And I think it's causing a, sort of a, a rethink with respect to how we want um, brokerages to interact with retail investors. So, you know, while on the one hand, as you point out, James, it, it's probably good that more people are able to trade if they want to, and that they can do it on a zero commission basis. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that there shouldn't be any guardrails, right? Um, because sometimes people enter the market and and they don't have a sophisticated understanding of what's going on, or, or maybe we just don't want them to fall prey to some of the more um, you know, pernicious prompts that may be out there in the market. So it, it suggests to me that there probably is some room for regulation in the space, but do you think there's a way to do it that isn't overly paternalistic? Yeah, I mean that's it, it is a tough question, right? The the most paternalistic solution would be to say, well, retail investors just can't trade in single name corporate equities or options or anything like that. And I you know, I just don't think that there's any political appetite for that. More broadly, you know, the the I don't see any desire to go in that paternalistic direction for the same reason that we were discussing earlier as a society we're actually generally okay with people speculating as long as it's with their eyes wide open um and yeah. we let people trade for rational reasons even if they're bad at it and i guess the problem and maybe this goes around the the paternalism concern is that if digital engagement practices are pushing trading for irrational or uninformed reasons if they are leading people to think that they have an informational edge over the rest of the market when they don't, you know, if they are encouraging people to, to engage in herding trades that might work in backtesting, but, uh, you know, don't, don't work for the, the average investor, things like that, then I'm not sure that the paternalism concern bears quite as strongly at least not any more so than ordinary restrictions on broker-dealer sales practices might be. But I take your point that regulatory interventions in this area could span a wide range of you know, paternalism. And it's, it's even possible that how we think about the, the, the use of regulation as a shield against digital engagement practices may also bear on on how we or may also relate to how we think about the role of robo advice in the future in encouraging yeah. responsible investing behavior if you believe kind of like i i tentatively do that probably the the best thing would be for most people just to be put into simple low cost index fund portfolios um you know if if we put folks in that kind of vehicle and if you think that that's it's good to do so, then you might be less concerned about regulating digital engagement practices on the broker-dealer front. By the same token, if you think that indexing is like, I forget if, which firm it was, which analyst said this a couple of years ago, if you think that indexing is worse than Marxism uh, because of its effects on uh, capital allocation, then you might really object to that role for robo-advice in the future. And you might similarly object to the idea that uh, you know regulators should be intervening to tell brokers more specifically what they can and can't do in presenting information to, to their clients. Yeah. I mean, there is a, a sort of choose your own adventure element to the markets right now, right? Because at the same time, we see this retail investor trading boom on you know some of the, the, the brokerage applications or online trading. We also have seen explosive growth in the robo-advisory space, right? Which 
you know, like you said, James, those are the, the places you go when you want somebody to put you in a basket of ETFs that roughly correlates to your risk appetite, right? <laughs> that whatever the, the suitability criteria would suggest, that's exploding at the same time. So maybe people are making conscious decisions. Um, and, you know, it's among the reasons I think the regulators need to think carefully about what they would do in this space. I mean, I, like, I think if we're being honest about some of the activity that we've seen during this year, it, it probably wasn't the gamification that was driving some of the trading so much as it was like Reddit boards, you know? So I, I don't know that you can regulate some of these, some of these things away. Um, so again, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see if they can find that kind of middle, middle road, but you know, let's assume that there is a, there is a path forward uh, and that, you know, the agencies are, or the SEC in particular are able to come up with some kind of, you know, rulemaking or guidance that targets, um, let's say gamification specifically, and not think more broadly about DEPs. What could be some of the broader market implications of that rulemaking? Yeah. So specific to gamification, you know, I, I think there are a couple of axes on which you could think about market implications. And the first and most obvious is the investor protection angle. Um, it's it's the clear rationale behind trying to get around uh, gamification regulation. You want to protect investors from a conflict of interest with their brokers that might lead to harmful outcomes like excessive trading that leads them to underperform whatever strategy they would have done absent the excessive trading. And that's been a long time concern of securities regulators in doctrines like churning, um, quantitative suitability and like that. Um, and you, so you might care about investors either because you care about them and you wanna make sure that you know they are tucked in and uh, warm and happy at night, or you might be concerned about their role in markets and you might not want to scare them away um, so, you know, the from that angle, you could think that a possible market implication is if excessive trading, you know, reflects that people are, are bad at retail trading and decades of evidence says that indeed it's, it's um, you know, as the title to one famous paper says, it's hazardous to your wealth. And so you might think that it's bad if gamification pushes underperforming strategies there's a there's a great deal of evidence, including uh, you know uh, Robinhood used to release data about its customers' trades um, with a, an online API, although that was uh, shut off about uh, a little over a year ago. But it gave a lot of information to financial economists who've, who've looked at the trades of Robinhood users, and some of that evidence suggests that you know certain short-term retail trader strategies might be profitable if you know to get in on the ground floor of one of those Reddit hurting trades, but that on the whole active trading probably isn't profitable. If the more people trade, the worse they do, then regulating gamification is going to have kind of some um, investor protection uh, impact there. Two other kind of Im important uh, consequences. One is on market quality. You know, you might ask what happens to prices and volatility um, if brokerage apps have an incentive to encourage a high volume of no informationally noisy uh, retail order flow. And by that, I mean, you know, the, the pattern of buy and sell orders is noisy and not related either to the fundamental value of the security or to the, the forward-looking, um, you know, uh, path of the, of the security price. And so there might be secondary effects on some of these 
uh, more traditional indicia of market quality, like uh, you know volatility and things like that. If it turns out that Robinhood users um, systematically increase volatility and widening bid ask spreads for stocks, that's going to have other effects on markets. And if gamification regulation kind of tamps down on that, we should see uh, lower volatility um, and plausibly better uh, market quality. Uh, you also might be concerned about um, uh, fixing mis misallocations of capital. If you have a, a conflict of interest uh, with your broker, uh, as my, my colleague uh, Ben Edwards at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas uh, School of Law has, has suggested, if you have a, a broker with a conflict of interest, that conflict can encourage them to allocate your capital away from what might be best for you or best for you know its uh, its highest value use and toward other less productive uses and we might be really concerned about that although for the reasons you point out there's this overlay of is this a, a problem of gamification or of other things like Reddit, right? Um, everyone was making fun of all of the traders who were piling into um, Hertz while it was in bankruptcy. Uh, you know, it, it looked like maybe a bad trade at the time. Uh, you know, we'll see who's who's laughing. Uh, you know, now. Um, but I, I guess the the last thing I'd say on that is re related to Hertz and the rest of um, kind of the the behavior of asset markets over the last year and a half. Markets have been broken for a long time in the sense that from the perspective of many observers, it seems like asset prices are way out of whack with um, kind of fundamentals, whatever that means. And for folks who kind of take a traditional finance perspective, the growth of, of crypto markets where there isn't really an obvious traditional finance way of doing asset pricing on a cryptocurrency, seeing all of this suggests that markets and prices no longer reflect kind of what's going on in the real world. If you think like me, it's good that people are becoming more skeptical of markets as just kind of naturally occurring uh, products of nature and not the, the products of people and regulators coming together with all of our uh, you know our our private interests and our biases, then I do think it's useful to take a look at gamification, and regulating it as a way of calling more attention to what we're trying to do in designing the rules governing market structure and, and the way that people interact in them. You talked about how retail trading is hazardous to your wealth, but isn't it true too that there's a lot of hedge fund and other financial managers out there who are consistently underperforming the market? I mean, are we over-regulating here in a way that we're not doing that on the other side of the coin? Are, are you asking me if I think that uh, private funds should be more heavily regulated? I mean, yeah, yeah, sure. For okay, sure. great. Good. Yeah, Just yeah, yeah. Get that baseline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, the, the thing that, um, you know, securities law has always struggled with is trying to distinguish between the, the risk appetites of ordinary traders and you know institutional players and so much of what securities law does to gatekeep investment access you know the the accredited investor standard or rules governing who is eligible to i mean you know to the, to this point right um there are uh, uh, pattern day trader rules that require you as a condition of being able to uh, place uh, more than a certain number of round trip day trades uh, within a certain time period, 
you know, you have to have uh, post minimum collateral to your account. Um, I think it's $25,000, something like that. And if that's the case, you know, it, it just illustrates that securities law already does all sorts of things to keep uh, smaller retail investors out of the market and to, to limit opportunities to the big players. I don't know that that necessarily suggests that there's a specific kind of regulation for you know the, the big players, the institutional traders here, but securities law definitely takes more of a, a heavy touch when thinking about this paternalism angle of, of what it lets ordinary people do. And just to be cynical about that for a moment, you know, the one of the founding myths of the SEC and of the securities laws is that it all came out of, you know, the the kind of retail destitution uh, from the, you know, the stock market crash of 1929. And, you know, there's been a lot of debates about the extent to which that actually played a role. But it is certainly true that retail traders are the constituents of people in Congress. And when they suffer losses or when they are concerned about something in financial markets, um, you know, uh, and this is not to discount the the role of big institutional players in shaping market rules, but legislators and regulators stand up and listen when retail investors, uh, you know, are complaining that they're experiencing harm. Understood. I didn't want to tip the scales too much in, in getting your opinion on how the rest of the market should be regulated, as well as our focus on retail and and DEPs. But that really poses the question. We've been talking about changing securities law, but what does that look like in detail? You know, which regulators are we referencing here when we talk about responding to DEPs and what should they be focusing on? Yeah, for sure. So just to to take a first stab at the SEC, which is the, the biggest player in this space, um, a majority of the commissioners have expressed interest in regulating DEPs. Um, I think we're going to see movement on it uh, at some point. The question is on what time frame. Um, the chair has made a couple of statements, uh, including one at the beginning of November, indicating that we might be looking at separate rulemakings for broker dealer and investment advisor digital engagement practices. My sense of that, certainly from um, reading other things that have come out of the commission, is that it reflects different regulatory concerns or risks, um, and partly also because it might be a big task in the agency to coordinate this sort of rulemaking across agency divisions like um, trading and markets and, and investment management. But you know, the, the agency put out a request for information uh, at, at the end of August, and that means that they are at the very early pre-rulemaking stage here. The agency is trying to figure out what is going on in the market, what are the contours of existing practices. And so, you know, the agency asked, for instance, about the use of predictive data analytics and uh, you know, there have been a, a bunch of comment letters. One of them is from Robinhood. And, you know, to my recollection, they responded that they don't use predictive data analytics. And so one of the goals of a request for information is just to figure out what actually is happening on the ground. That's at least the optimistic take. The agency needs information about how this is playing out in the real world in order to figure out uh, how to move forward on these regulatory design questions. The more cynical take is that the agency relies on big incumbents to say what is kind of a market practice um, so that that can be baked into the regulations to, to give incumbents an advantage. I don't know that that's what's going on here, although sometimes it's uh, you know the, the use of these early requests for information um, type 
you know, releases, but I expect that we'll see from the SEC's uh, standpoint, uh, a bit more action um, on, on that as we gear up toward rulemaking. That doesn't cover some lurking questions about market structure and PFOF. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of interest in Congress and from other, you know, industry observers about, uh, you know, either tightening or getting rid of uh, PFOF entirely. It's not entirely clear what the SEC is going to do about that, given you know um, the lobbying uh, by the the Wall Street um, firms that kind of profit from that kind of business. You know, th- that's not to say that it, that there's not going to be movement there. Uh, I just I don't know how to to read those tea leaves. But the SEC isn't the only player in this space, right? So um, Finra, as the broker dealer regulator, has a couple of roles and has has made noise in this as well. Um, so Finra brought the biggest enforcement action ever, as well as a, a number of kind of smaller enforcement actions against Robinhood, including for best execution violations um, and other things related to you know, its PFOF arrangements. We should probably expect to see FINRA will do a little bit more of that. Um, you might wonder where else it's going to go, uh, either with respect to Robinhood or other kinds of engagement practices. FINRA was historically worried about churning and quantitative suitability as you know the the basis for uh you know uh for for so many years um sales practice enforcement against brokers and i think it remains to be seen the extent to which finra is going to take um, a leading role in enforcing those rules against um brokers for their digital engagement practices i do expect to see a big role for finra in examination and risk compliance i know that they have uh talked a lot about how they're trying to ramp up there um you could also see new guidance or rulemaking on things like uh, customer advertising or, or recommendations or the like. The, the last thing I'll say is um, you also have, in addition, the state securities regulator in Massachusetts has sued Robinhood on uh, state fiduciary duty theories, arguing that gamification is uh, in violation of those duties. It's not clear how a set of challenges to those state fiduciary duties um, is going to play out. Robin Hood has sued that state regulator. But all of this is to say that there's a multifaceted uh, approach that regulators across the country are taking to gamification. And it remains to be seen how the story is going to play out. So let's let's focus on the SEC for a second here. I mean, as you said, they're they're the big player in the space. And you know, one of the things we love here at Insecurities is having former government officials come on the show so they can sometimes give us a little bit of a read on, you know, how the sausage is made. So, I mean, you mentioned that they may be thinking about some kind of guidance or, or rulemaking in the space. Uh, you were in the Office of General Counsel for uh, about five years. So I'm going to ask you to do some crystal ball gazing here in a second. But before we do that, um, tell me, like, what is happening at the SEC right now? I'm sure there are a number of staffers who are losing sleep over this. What are they doing? Yeah, so I, I should admit that um, my work was not focusing so much on on rulemaking. It was more on the adjudication side. But rulemaking is a, a huge undertaking across the agency. And so you have folks at the operating division level. So here that would be um, you know, trading and markets for the broker-dealer issues, as well as um, you know, investment management for the the IA issues, and they are going to be coordinating with folks in the Office of General Counsel, trying to consume all of the comments that the 
public and regulated entities are putting in in response to that request for information about digital engagement practices, trying to get a sense of where the market practices are and trying to identify what the resulting risks are. And from the staff's perspective, you know, they can put things together, they can start to think about ways of framing the risks. Ultimately, as I think you you heard on your uh, interview with uh, Ty Galash last week, you know the the staff is not going to be the ones uh, you know they're not the ones who are appointed uh, by the president and confirmed by the Senate, right? And so the staff is not going to be the ones to stick their neck out with like super strong policy recommendations. Although of course they have a role in framing and proposing uh, things that the that the commission is going to want to do. But for the most part. The way this sausage gets made is it's an ongoing process of collaboration and negotiation between a bunch of different stakeholders around the agency, you know, in the operating divisions, in the general counsel's office, trying to figure out how to comply with you know, all of the rulemaking process requirements, um, as well as trying to make sure that they are hitting not only the substantive concerns that commenters have raised, but also hitting all of the regulatory concerns and risks that uh, is going to be articulated at the uh, what, what we would call in the building the, the 10th floor level, uh, at the level of the commissioners and their staff. All right. So thinking about the 10th floor level, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do some crystal ball gazing. Um, let's just assume that the staff is able to work through this and you know, communicate effectively with the folks on the 10th floor. What do you think uh, guidance or rulemaking might actually look like? And, and do you think we're going to see it in the nearest term? Yeah. So I, the thing that I expect to see in the nearest term is more speeches and informal staff guidance on existing regulatory tools. So if it turns out that recommendations under Reg BI um, is a sufficiently capacious category that it covers a fair amount of what people are concerned about in these markets, right? If it turns out that a push notification counts as a recommendation under Reg BI, then it's actually fairly easy for the agency to respond to some of that low-hanging fruit by just putting it out there that this is how they think of uh, you know, these practices, and this is how they are um, you know, uh, interpreting the prevailing law. And I should say, they're already is a fair amount of um, you know kind of existing legally binding um, authority out there. Finra about 20 years ago, I, I should say Finra's predecessor, um, 20 years ago put out uh, you know notice to members, I think uh, 0123, I think, um, that talked about what it means to do a recommendation in the context of online brokerage. And you know that went through the normal Exchange Act Section 19 self-regulatory organization review process and therefore became kind of binding as a matter of law. But you could imagine stuff coming out of FINRA or from the SEC uh, that just elaborates on existing legal tools. And I suspect that that's something you're going to see more of um, on on the near-term horizon. Further out, I I could envision, and the agency has signaled that it intends to undertake positive rulemaking on robo-advice from the investment advice perspective, as well as rulemaking that deals with digital engagement practices in the broker-dealer space. And they potentially raise different regulatory risks and opportunities. Um, so 
it's possible that you'll either see elaboration on Reg BI and further rulemaking in that space, or harmonization as the Dodd-Frank Act, um, you know, instructed the SEC to take a look at harmonization of the standards of conduct for broker-dealers and investment advisors. And if the regulators go down that path, you know, that's I, I don't envision anything happening until well after the midterm elections in, in that sense. I do expect that the kinds of regulatory res- responses that we see are more mainstream like that. I don't expect that we'll see some of the options that are on the table, like banning retail trading, uh, you know, transactional frictions, you know, increasing minimum commission pricing, things like that. Those all seem like political non-starters. And it seems more likely that you're going to see either regulations that attack the underlying conflict of interest in these kind of brokerage PFOF arrangements or attacking that underlying market plumbing problem. You referenced the harmonization that may be coming down the road, James. But you know, Kurt and I live in this cynical world where things don't harmonize. And what happens? Enforcement happens after those rules don't harmonize. And, and there may be some, <laughs> some follow-up or some diversity in practice, we'll call it, out in the market. Uh, Kurt and I always love to talk about enforcement. That's what you know we do on a regular basis, as well as what interests us. And Kurt, I'll reference a tweet you sent out during the Securities Enforcement Forum a couple of weeks ago, Ooh. where uh, you were talking through the Commissioner Gensler's remarks. He was referencing how high impact cases can change behavior. And the quote here is, some may call this regulation by enforcement. I just call it enforcement. So with that context from the Commissioner, uh, James, how do you see some of these issues coming down the road? Are we going to get that rulemaking, that harmonization, or do you think it's going to be that Monday morning quarterbacking or that regulation by enforcement? Wow. So I, that's a that's a big question. And I actually think it's two really big questions, right? Mm-hmm. One of them is a, a big open question about the direction of policymaking at the SEC. Um, we saw in the last administration, there was not really appetite to, to fully harmonize those uh, you know, standards of conduct for broker-dealers and investment advisors. Uh, there may be more appetite for it here today, and this might be a you know, an, an angle through which the SEC might be able to pursue that. I'm I'm a little agnostic or maybe skeptical that they're going to actually do that, but it certainly would seem to solve many of these problems. If you take the view as, you know, the Massachusetts state securities regulator does that encouraging people to trade solely in order to increase your own remuneration, and even if it's not in the best interest of your client, that that's probably going to be a breach of fiduciary duty. Um, you know, in Massachusetts's case, there are questions about like whether you know Massachusetts law actually uh, does that, or you know, f- uh, big open federal preemption questions. But at the federal level, I think it remains to be seen whether that project is actually going to go through. You raise this other question about regulatory design, and the thing that we've seen over the last you know certainly five years is a bigger push toward principles based regulation here are the things that we're concerned about we're not necessarily going to tell you um, as finely grained what you must do but we're more concerned with here are the regulatory risks and we want to make sure you're addressing them and you could go the other direction and have finely grained command and control regulation of app design and things like that but you know i, I think as we've often experienced in in the securities law context, that raises lots of hard line drawing problems. If you think about 
confetti regulation and, and gamification, you know, how much confetti is too much? I know it when I see it, right? I mean, there's not not great answers there. And oftentimes you'll see regulated entities say, well, we want the flexibility to be able to tailor our compliance with you know, the, the underlying regulatory concerns without having to also comply with specific detailed uh, you know, regulatory instructions or requirements that might not um, you know, fit our business or um, you know, our risks. I do think that unless you're going to you know, completely go to uh, you know, a, a line item by line item uh, mandatory command and control regime, there's going to be some inevitable regulation by enforcement whenever you have principles-based regulation. And there's maybe a good reason for that. I mean, the reason why we have a principles-based uh, standard rather than a clear bright line rule for what constitutes an investment contract under the Howey test is, you know, to hear the Supreme Court say it, there are lots of ways that people will try and take your money. And so securities law has to be flexible uh, to get around all of that. Now, that doesn't make regulated industries very happy, but I will say that regulation by enforcement is not a new concept. Uh, you know, uh, Roberta Carmel, a former SEC commissioner and then um, a Brooklyn Law School professor for many years, wrote a book, uh, you know, maybe around 1980, Regulation by Prosecution, about the SEC enforcement program. And you know, 40, here we are 40 years later, and we're still having the same conversation. So in some sense, I think it's probably inevitable that regulation by enforcement is going to stay with us. Uh, mostly a question of whether we can uh, move the needle here. Well, I know I'm going to be watching the, the space closely to see what happens. Uh, and, and you're really, you're speaking to me, James, with, with this line between principles-based and and more prescriptive rulemaking. It's something that we've talked about an awful lot here on this Yeah, we're show. hitting kind of the uh, so, Kurt Wolf bingo yeah. card today. We I, got robo-advisors, we got Reg BI, yep. regulation by enforcement. Yep. We're just ticking them all yep. off for you, Kurt. I know. It, James, you can come back anytime. <laughs> all right. You, you can you can co-host. I don't know. We'll talk about it with <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I might have to sit a couple more out. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Professor James Tierney from the University of Nebraska College of Law. Uh, it's great to chat with you today, and we look forward to all of your upcoming research in the securities and gamification world. Great. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate being here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Professor James Tierney of the University of Nebraska College of Law. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, 
or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. Thank you.